I want to welcome everybody to Crossing Church. Happy New Year, right? New Year. Who is excited that we have started a new year? Who's just ready for a new year, right? Um, does anybody look back at last year and is like, man, I'm so glad 2023 is over, right? That you're, just, you're just done and you're ready for this new year start. Well, um, what a way to start the new year by being here at church. Um, we have a couple things coming up tonight or this week as well that I want to point your attention to. We have our banquet tonight, uh, and that's a big deal here at the Crossings. We love our banquet. Uh, it's our end of the year or beginning of the year, whatever you want to call it, banquet. And what we do at this banquet is, first and foremost, we eat, all right? And so if you're going to eat dinner tonight, which you all probably are, um, unfortunately, some of our diet people uh, won't be able to eat all of the food because <laughs> coating some of them. Uh, but we are getting fire and smoke, which is a really good barbecue um, it's tonight at five, I believe. Yep, it's on the back of your uh, bulletin. And what we do at this banquet is we kind of highlight some things that have happened this last year. We kind of walk through some of the people who've been baptized. We, we kind of look back and reflect on what the kind of year that we had. Uh, we have some fun things. We have some girls that give out awards and have kind of like a parody skit that they do along with it. And uh, we also cast a vision for our next year. We have, we have a vision, like this whole year we've been going through to be continued. We will have a new vision for the next year, a new plan that we want to set out, and we'll have a new graphic, and we'll have just a new a direction that we feel like this is where we want our church to go this next year. This is where we want to focus this next year. This is where we want our people to connect with this next year. And so uh, whether you're a member here at the Crossings or you're visiting with us and you're trying to get to know what this church is about, this banquet is a great place to be. Uh, there's some costs for the food on there as well if you want to look through that. Um, but we encourage you guys to, to be there tonight. It's going to be great. Uh, we also have our family vacation coming up next weekend. And so that's for any college and high school students. I won't speak on that too much. But if you're a college student or a high school student, it is a retreat for us to kind of get refocused and uh, uh, just re-engaged in our purpose as we start the spring semester. And so if you're wanting to know more about that, it's at the Lake of the Ozarks this year. And uh, talk to me or talk to Alameda and Emily or somebody like that, and we'll get you connected to that. All right, so it's a new year. Why do we have this graphic still? You might be asking that question, right? Uh, we have this graphic still because, number one, we haven't done our banquet yet, so we're not going to reveal it at church. We'll actually reveal the new graphic tonight. Uh, but two, we want to take a minute to look back at this past year. And if you guys look at your, um, uh, your bulletins, there should be a piece of paper with some notes in it that you guys can follow along with today. And the title, if you look at those notes, is Continuing Resolutions, right? And what we're talking about today is that the whole theme, if you weren't with us this last year, or you kind of jumped in towards the end of the year and you didn't really see the whole message or the meaning behind this graphic of to be continued and, and, and how we've chosen to go through this uh, this last year, I'll, I'll kind of give you a, a quick uh, synopsis of what, what we were talking about. The idea was we went through the book of Acts. This whole last year, we were planted in the book of Acts. And we wanted to take the book of Acts and turn it into not just a, a story time or not just something that we, we know from Scripture, but we really wanted to transform our minds into making it a history book because that's what it is. The, the book of Acts, and honestly, all of Scripture is history. And our goal was for us to understand that this is history that was meant to be documented for a reason for us to look at ourselves as a young church in our time and, and, and model a young church in that time to, to watch and see the things that had happened in 
the first century in the church being established and how fast it transcended into not just a few men, but thousands of men and women. And what they did in that time frame and what they had to accomplish and what they were challenged to do as men and women of, of, of Christ to, to, to explode and to make a momentum happen and say, listen, if that's what they were able to do in the first century, then there is a reason why it's documented in history, it's, and it's because we can do the same thing here. And that was the whole goal. And as you look through the book of Acts, there was just this, this incredible challenge that starts off with 12 men, right? Jesus dies um, at, at the end of the Gospels, and, and, and at the beginning of Acts, he's got his 12 disciples, and they're trying to figure out what's going on, and Jesus comes back, right? And he talks to them, and, and, and he gives them, you know, 40 days to talk about this purpose and this mission, and then Jesus leaves, and these 12 men embark on the greatest mission of all time, and it leads us to where we're at today. We would not be here today if it wasn't for what happened in the book of Acts. And what happens is, is, is very quickly in Acts 2, we see the day of Pentecost, right? And we see over 3,000 people were added to the church that day. Just like that, right? That's a pretty good-sized church for being one day old, right? To think if we opened our doors on one day and then the next day we got 3,000 people. That would be insane, right? And, and very quickly we see in Acts 2 as well, it says, that, it says that they were still being added daily to the number that were saved. So that means at the very minimum... After these 3,000 people were converted and this church is established and we have Christianity at, at a mass, large scale right now, it's saying that they're being added to daily. So that means at least 365 people were being added to this church a year, right? Could you even think of what the crosses would look like if we added 365 members a year? That's insane. And that's where it starts here. And that's the bare minimum when it talks about adding to the church at that time. Right, And then we kind of see, it jumps down to Acts 4, right? And it says that many believe that message and the number of men grew to be 5,000. A lot of scholars believe when you look at it, they document, they normally just count men. They don't count women and children as well. So there's a very good chance that this number of 5,000 could have very easily been 10 or 15,000 if you put the numbers in that go along with just the men that they would have families that would have came along with this. And so now we go from Acts 2 to Acts 4, that we started with 12, and we went to 120, and now we went to 3,000, and now we're up to uh, five to 10,000 or 15,000 at this time, right? Um, it says that it kept, it kept being added to, it kept, it kept growing. Um, it says in, in Acts 5:28, it says, "We gave you strict orders to teach the same name, yet you've, been filled, you've now filled Jerusalem with your teaching." So now it's not just this small thing that happened in the book of Acts that's like this small community has kind of had this like exciting outgrowth and it's just, it's still hitting a small community. It's saying the entire town, the entire region of Jerusalem is now being impacted by this. And then we get to Acts 6 and it says the believers started to multiply. So now we're no longer on an addition scale. We're now on a multiplication scale. Now it's not that a church of 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 5,000 is adding one every day. It's that 5,000 people are adding 5,000 people, and they're adding 5,000 people. And it's, it's becoming a multiplication, and things start, to go, things start to go crazy from there. Acts 6, 7 says the word of God spread, and the number of disciples increased in Jerusalem rapidly. It became like a snowball. Anybody get out and play in the snow yesterday? Nobody? Well, I have three daughters, so I was forced to, right? Um, <laughs> And so I was out there, and we started to build a snowman in my front yard, and it, it was the good snow, all right? You guys know there's some good snow and bad snow? Well, when you have kids, the, the good snow is the stuff that you can pack and, and light them up, right, to make sure that they know their place in the house. Um, the, 
the bad snow is the stuff that you try to collect and it's so dusty and wispy and it just you can't do anything with it. It's just, it's just there, but it, it's terrible, right? Well, we started to build a snowman, and for all, all you have to do when you have the good snow is all you got to do is you got to pack one little tiny ball in the ground, right? And the moisture and, and the snow around it, as you roll it, it will literally grab every other piece of snow around it. And so it looked like to me, I was mowing my lawn because I was rolling this giant ball and the snow was literally, just, like it was literally clear, clean grass behind me. There was no snow. I was literally taking all the snow off of my ground and I was building these giant, this giant snowman in my front yard and it's still there today. It's kind of creepy because some of it's melted so some of the smiles kind of turned to a frown a little bit. Um, he don't look so happy no more. Um, but he's still there. And uh, it's crazy because it got, it, it started with this little tiny snowball. And I pushed it into this giant snowman. That even the, the middle part of the section, I had to have my wife help me pick it up. And I was like, time to do CrossFit, babe. It's uh, time to shine. You do all this CrossFit, all this working out. It's time to put it to practice. And we had to lift this thing up because it was so heavy. And that's kind of what it's describing in the book of Acts on how things changed in this community. It was no longer just a couple people anymore. It was now a snowball effect that anyone and everyone that was touched and impacted by anyone and everyone that knew Christianity was starting to become exposed to this, and it was taking it by storm. Now we jump down to Acts 21. And this is approximately 25 years or so after the Great Conversion, after the Pentecost, right? And it says that when they praised God and said this to Paul, they said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed? It's talking about Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of different scholars that believe that there's a different types of numbers of people that were converted at this time within the 25 years. There's a man named B.H. Carroll who thought that there was probably 100,000 members of the church in Jerusalem after 25 years. Another man, Peter Wagner, uh, would agree with that. Another man, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, says that there would have been maybe a minimum of 60,000. Either way, all these Bible scholars have these different numbers in their heads, right? No matter, and what we did was we pretty much took these scholars and we, and we tried to find the minimum and the maximum and put us in the middle, right? And, 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 and the minimum that most people would say would be 60,000 members. The maximum would be closer upwards to 100,000 members. And it doesn't really matter who's right and who's wrong there. The reality is, is that it went from 12 people to finding themselves in the middle of those two numbers, Right? And every year we can see here at the Crossings Church and we say, well, how many members are in the church? And we can, we can be off by a handful of people, right? So we, say, we can say 120 or 130 or, you know, whatever. But to say, oh, it's between 60,000 and 100,000, there's a huge growth that would have happened if that was what we would say out loud. But what really, what really challenges me is that number of 60,000 to 100,000 because what you don't know is that at that time, in Jerusalem, most scholars believe that there was approximately 200,000 people that lived in that town. So what we're saying is that somewhere between a third and a half of all of Jerusalem had converted to Christianity. Now put that into perspective in the town that you live in, whether it be Godfrey, Collinsville, Alton, Troy, Edwardsville, Think of a third or a half of your town was a Christian. That would be insane. Insane to think of that number, right? 
So that's why we focused on this this last year. Because there is such a hope and there is such a, there is such a thought of if they can do it with 12, why are we not capable with 120 or 140? What were they doing that was so incredible that we can't do with 10 times the amount of people? And so my, my hope and our hope as a leadership at the church this year was to help us get this, this, this drive, this confidence that we are no different than them. And because of that, what we can achieve as a church is no different than them. Who we can reach on this earth is no different than who they could reach. And the freedoms that we were given in America were a lot more loose than the freedoms that they were given in the first century. And to think, what is it that we need to learn from that? And that was the goal this year. And I hope for a lot of you guys, you can look back at this past year and say, man, I really did learn something from the book of Acts. I learned a little bit about my grandfathers in the faith. I learned, about, I learned a little bit about my history. But more importantly, I hope that you heard and learned, I know what I'm now capable of because of what they've done. But now we can, you know, for most people, when we start a new year, when we start a new resolution, we can kind of flush that stuff out of our minds, say, all right, it's moving on. We're going to hear a new theme tonight. We're going to go in a new direction tonight. And we, can, and we can leave that all behind. And it was a good memory to look back on, but we don't really need to, you know, let it stay with us. Well, that's what today's sermon's about. Because I really want to challenge us as a church to look at what we heard this last year and realize that we need to continue that resolution into the next year that no matter what kind of resolution you want to start this year out with, that you will continue to have that resolution be a part of whatever resolution you want to continue to add on to this year. You see, people add resolutions into their lives for one of two reasons. Number one is most people will look back into their, their, their last year and realize they failed in some area or there was some area that was lacking. You know, for most people, you, you, the most common resolutions, right, are they want to exercise more or they want to diet more. Or they, they want to they budget better. And it's because of they're looking at their last year and saying, man, I ate way too much. <laughs> you know, my, I feel a lot different. My body feels different. I feel more sluggish. I feel, I feel more slow. Um, I, feel, I feel my age is coming up on me. And so I, maybe I need to start exercising more. I need to start putting these things into practice because when I look at last year, it wasn't a great place for me. And maybe my money's in, the, in a bad place. And I look at my last year, I was very poor with my spending. And this year, I want to be more disciplined. I want to have more money to my exposal to be able to use the way I want to. I don't want to feel like I'm scraping and going paycheck to paycheck. And, and, and so people will put resolutions into place because they realize that there was something that was lacking in the year before. People will also make resolutions because they found something to add to their life that they didn't have before that they know is more beneficial. You know, I've never had this before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add this to my life now because it's going to help me so much more this year if I implement this thing instead of not having it at all. And that's a resolution idea with our relationship with God. You see, with God, and what we learned this last year is that we can look back and say, man, there are maybe some areas in my life and my relationship with God and my relationship with Jesus Christ that I failed. I, I was very not in the right place with these things. I was not, I, I had definitely struggled and I knew these things and I knew since I didn't put them into place, I saw the negative impacts of those things. And I've got to change something this year in my relationship with God. 
because my life does not feel like it should be where, it want, where I want it to be. Or the second part of that is maybe you found something this year. You know, I didn't know that about God. I didn't know that about Jesus. I didn't know that about community. I didn't know that about fellowship. I didn't know, I didn't know any of that stuff. But I want to add it to my life this year because I know it can help me, or I hope it can help me, because I've never seen the impact of what my life could be like if I had that thing in my life. And no matter where you're at in one of those two, our goal is continue the book of Acts, and that's what our points are going to be about today is because we believe that if we want to have the Acts impact to be continued, if we want to have that resolution, then we need to have a resolve in a couple areas. We need to have a resolve if we want to continue that book of Acts in a way that we can see the, the, the progression of the churches and the snowball effect. There are some things that each and every one of us has to commit to. And these aren't resolutions as a church. You know, if, well, I guess if you're, biblically as a church, they are because it's individuals. But what I'm saying is, is these aren't resolutions we can have as a facility, as a building, as the Crossing Church. These are resolutions that we have to have individually as members of the body of Christ so that the church can progress in the way it's meant to be. You see, we can't set anything in place in this church building that's going to make the members catch on, but it's the opposite, that the church, the members, have to set a pace in their lives for the building and the facilities and, and what we have here to grow. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. And these are universal, so it doesn't matter where you're at in your resolutions. These are, these are DNA resolutions for every disciple, no matter where you're at in life. And number one is that I resolve that I will submit to the Jesus of Acts. The Acts impact must be continued, so I have to have a resolution that I will submit to the Jesus of Acts. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we have a lot of different faces of Jesus in this culture. We have a lot of different faces of Jesus that we choose to, to look at, right? Literally, even the face of Jesus, right? We've seen the photos that go up on walls, right? And, and the, 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 the brown, you know, the, the, the brown, beautiful locks that's straight-haired and perfect goatee, right? And his skin's as white as the sun, you know? Like, and we see these images of Jesus, and there, you know, there aren't any actual photos of Jesus that we can look back and refer to but we definitely know from the context of where he was born and where he was raised that he looked nothing like that, you know? But there is a reason why the American Jesus on those kind of walls looks like that. Now, if you go to other areas of the country, you won't see those photos up on those kind of walls. If you go to the Middle East or if you go to different places, you won't see that kind of Jesus posted up on a wall because they don't believe that's what he looked like. You'll see a different type of man. And what that means is that no matter, no matter what Scripture says, we, we have always found a way to change the face of Jesus physically, right? Through photos and whatever we do. But that also means that we're not, we're, we're not, we're not um, exempt from changing the character of Jesus because of our context and where we're at. And I think a lot of times we get caught up doing that same thing where it's not just the face and the photo that we see on the wall, the tattoo that we choose to get, but we choose to change the character of Jesus to fit what we feel like molds who we think Jesus really is. And what it says here in Acts 2, 36 and 40, it says, All the people of Israel should know beyond a doubt that God made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter said much more to warn them. He urged, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And it describes some different parts of who Jesus really is here. 
You see, a lot of us, we may look at Jesus as just one of these entities. We don't look at Jesus as the, as, as the full picture, but we see just certain parts that really do complement our lives. We see, we see the soft side of Jesus, the loving side of Jesus, the, the side of Jesus that, and honestly, every side of Jesus is loving. It just may doesn't feel like that and, and how it comes out. But we see, this, we see the certain side of Jesus that, that is, is more comfortable, comfortable for us, right? But what we see here in Acts, we see some different characteristics that we need to re- really submit to. And number one is that Jesus will be my Lord. There's a characteristic in Jesus that he is Lord. And that's a face of Jesus that tends to be forgotten by most. You see, more people want to look at Jesus as the man who saved us and is getting us a free ticket to heaven, but we neglect the idea that Jesus is also the man who is now Lord in our lives. It says in Luke 6, 46, it says, Why you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You see, just calling him Lord is not making him Lord. And he made that very clear. He says, why do you say that word when you don't put to practice what that word actually means. Why do you call me this, but you don't do that? You know, and, and, and it doesn't matter what, what we are in life. Why would you call somebody an athlete if they don't play sports? Why would you call somebody a scholar if they don't study? Why would you call somebody if a student if they're not going to school? Why would you call people A, B, and C if whatever that word describes that person as is not what that person actually is. And Jesus says that. Why do you say that I'm Lord? Because it's a lot easier for us to say it than it is for us to do it. And for some reason, we get it so twisted in our heads that if we acknowledge him as that through our vocabulary and through our mindset, maybe in some weird, twisted way, it doesn't mean we actually have to apply what that word actually means in our lifestyle. And this year, if we're going to have a resolve to be like the church of Acts, we have to acknowledge and not just acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but we have to live in a way that shows that Jesus is Lord. It is not enough to call Jesus Lord himself, but it is so much more important for us to live in a way. And maybe you can look back at this last year and say, man, you know, I knew that Jesus was Lord a lot, but I did not live like he was the Lord of my life. And there are some things that need to change, so I'm not just saying it like these people were, but I'm showing it so he knows that it's real. So number one is Jesus will be my Lord. Number two, Jesus will be my anointed king. You see, Jesus came back for 40 days, right, and he talked to his disciples, and and whatever he talked about, it it probably carried some weight to to those men. If he's gonna sit down and discuss with them for 40 days before they start this ministry, the things that he talks about must really be a force to what they need to talk about to the world when they go out and, and, and seek and save the lost. And it says in Acts 1-3, it says, After his suffering, he showed himself alive to them in many convincing ways, then appeared to them repeatedly over a period of 40 days. And what did he talk about? He talked with them about the kingdom and the affairs of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus came back and he talked with his men And he mainly talked about the affairs that happened in the kingdom. And when you think about that, it's important to say, well, why would you want to talk about something that's not here? Why would you want to talk about something that, you know, why why would you come back and talk to us about heaven one day? And what they started to quickly understand was that the kingdom was already on earth. 
that Jesus was establishing his kingdom right then and there. And light bulbs started popping off in these disciples' heads. And they were like, whoa. So this lordship stuff, this king stuff, I don't just start serving for you and with you when I'm in heaven one day, right? That happens now. That happens today. And Jesus is like, now you're starting to get it. Now you're starting to get it because the Pharisees don't get it. They didn't get that there's a kingdom here right now. And with me dying on this cross and going to heaven and coming back and talking to you and helping you understand and explaining this to you, your mission is to start a new kingdom here because it's been established and it's time for you to start finding people to join this kingdom. But in any kingdom, any kingdom over all this man of histories, there has to be a king. There has to be one in charge or there is no kingdom. It's just a township. It's just a fellowship. It's just a commonwealth. But for it to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. And so what do these men talk about? What does Peter say later in Acts 28? What does, he talk to, what does he talk to people about? He preaches boldly about God's kingdom. He taught people about the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one could keep him from teaching and preaching about these things. You see, Peter finally, it, it went off, and he finally understood, people need to know about this kingdom. And what they need to know is that there is a king, and his name is Jesus, and he came and he died for us so we could live in that kingdom. And we don't have to wait until we die like he did to live in that kingdom. But when we do die through baptism, we join that kingdom immediately. And the rest of our time here on earth is meant to serve this king. But we will neglect that if we don't understand that Jesus is king in our lives. And my challenge to you guys today, church, is for you to understand that if you have, have committed your life to Christ and you have surrendered your life to Christ through baptism, you now have a king. And your lifestyle and the actions and the decisions and the choices that you make are meant to please your king and only your king. And church, sometimes I think we get it backwards and we, and we still please ourselves and we still pursue things of our own. And my question is, looking at this, back, this last year, have you lived in a way that shows that you are in a kingdom or has that light bulb not went off yet for you? And the resolution this year is to have that light bulb go off and finally realize, man, I am in a kingdom and there is a king and my lifestyle needs to reflect that. And if you're not there yet, this third point should hopefully drive you to get there because Jesus, the character that we know the most and we see the most through this world, is that Jesus will be my Savior. You see, this is the one that we are the most common with. This is the one that we are most willing to accept. This is the one that we're most willing to live with. But this should drive the other two. You see, you would never just want to submit your life and give up control because somebody tells you to, right? Just give up your life because I say so, you know? Let me, let me, let me, run, let me run your life because I, I want to, you know? But there's a purpose. And that purpose for us 
is because we know that Jesus came to give us a hope, a future, and to save us from this corrupt generation. And whenever we know that and we feel that, that will compel us to live under a lordship. That will compel us to be in a kingdom with a king. That will, that will help us understand that it's, I don't want to live for myself because the way I've been living in the world that I live in, in this corrupt generation, there is no hope. And I feel like I'm at the bottom of the barrel. And I feel like I keep on digging myself out of a pig's pen. And I can't stand life. But you've come to pull me out of that. And you've come to give me a hope. And you've come to give me a future. And you've come to, you've come to love me un- unconditionally. Yeah, I'll live for you. If those are the characteristics and qualities of the God that you're going to be for me, I'll, 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 be your, I'll be your slave. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll let you control me. I'll let you live in lordship. I'll let, I'll let you be Lord in my life. And that part, guys, if you can get it to, if you can get that to seep in that I, want, I should be compelled because of that, then we can live in a way that we can see Jesus for really who he is in the book of Acts in this next year. Okay? Number two is I resolve, our next, our next resolution, our, uh, the next way that we need to resolve this year, is that I will surrender my life to Christ's purpose. I will surrender my life to Christ's purpose. See, he gives us some tools once we enter this kingdom, Right? You enter a kingdom, you get the benefits of the kingdom. You get the, the you get, you get the, <clears throat> you, you get, you know, if you, if like, it's like if you moved into a certain neighborhood, right? And maybe they have like a, a private pool or a private, you know, playground. that Only the residents get access to these things. You, you get certain amenities in your relationship with God now that you're in his kingdom. It says in Acts 1, 6 through 8, it says, So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? They're trying to figure out where this is at. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling the people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, he says that he's going to give us a power in our lives. And that power was given for the purpose. That's your next point. The power was given for the purpose because we get this power, this Holy Spirit comes within us and it gives us a power, but it's not just like God's gonna zap us with some cool superpowers because now like he's our Lord, right? That's not what's going on here. It's like, boom, power of the Holy Spirit. Boom, power of the Holy Spirit. Now go off and show it off. You know, like go show people that you're better than them and you got cool things and they don't and maybe, maybe they'll get some cool perks too if they come and jump in, right? That's not... The reason that we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's not the reason that we were given the power of the Holy Spirit, but we were given the power of the Holy Spirit to have something supernatural working within us for a purpose greater than ourselves. You see, we learn through God's message what that power was meant to be used for. It says in Acts 2.38, it says, Peter said to them, each one of you must turn away from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins will be forgiven and you will receive God's gift, the Holy Spirit. You see, this power was meant to help us be something different because we, we could not be anything different without the power of God. Think about your backgrounds. Think about where you're from. Think about your context. Think about, think about everything you had growing up. 
You know, for a lot of us, maybe we have some good memories. For some of us, not so much. For some of us, maybe we faced a lot of loneliness when we were children. We faced, maybe there was some abuse that we had experienced firsthand, or maybe there was some neglect that we had seen within our families. Maybe there were some financial situations that we looked at and said, this is, this is toxic. Maybe there were some this, this irresponsibilities, some products of our environments that we had seen. And we can look and maybe there's some addictions, maybe there's some coping mechanisms that weren't healthy and our family members or us ourselves got involved in some things that were just not good. The Bible calls that sin, you know? The things that we engulf ourselves in that aren't meant to glorify God, but they're meant to glorify each other. Just toxic, negative stuff. And what happens is, no matter what one of those things you were involved in or you had seen, you are an addict to that sin. And we are all addicts to sin in our own facets, whether you like it or not. Today, you can acknowledge that you are an addict (laughs) and that you were an addict. We all were in some area of our lives because we were addicted to sin. We chose to live in sin. And we got a message of a dude that was going to help us with that addiction. So now that we've all acknowledged that we've been addicts in our lives with our sin, God provided Jesus to give us a help, to give us a resource. But here's the thing. Don't ever get it backwards that you did something in your life to get rid of the addiction. Don't don't ever believe that you were so strong and capable yourself to be able to finally get rid of the addiction of sin that was going on in your life. No matter if it was pride or neglect or financial dis, dis, you know, irresponsibilities or abuse or actual you know, physical addictions with drugs and, and alcohol use. You, we, you were all addicts just like I was. But don't ever acknowledge that it was you that got you out of that, that addiction. See, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the power of God. That something supernatural came into your life because if it wasn't for God, you would probably still be doing that stuff. We all say that, don't we, Right? If it wasn't for God, I'd probably be divorced today. If it wasn't for God, I'd probably be in prison. If it wasn't for God, I'd probably knock up. So it's not you that stopped the addictions. It wasn't anything natural on this earth that you said, you know, I tried something different. What you tried, if you're in that place today, is you tried to give your life to somebody else who gave you something supernatural that changed the way you thought, the way you felt, the way you acted, the way you lived. And it's no longer saying, I'm no longer an addict to sin because I made some changes. You're saying, I'm no longer an addict to sin because something supernatural changed the way I think and feel in my heart, and now I'm something completely different. And I can give that to any addict on this earth. I can give that to anyone who's caught up in sin. He says, turn away from your sins and be baptized, and you will receive that gift. You see, the greatest, the greatest example, the greatest evidence of this power, of this Holy Spirit, is not speaking in tongues. It's not, it's not one of those things that is so supernatural that it looks supernatural. Like It's not like blazing down and, and giving people powers of healing. And Those aren't the most powerful evidences and examples because we don't see those today. But what you do see 
is when somebody is completely living under the control of the Holy Spirit. And you see the testimony of what their life was and what their life now is. That is the most powerful example that you will see today of somebody who's living in the Spirit is a complete transformation of life that they are no longer an addict, but they have recovered because somebody had come in and intervened in a supernatural way. It says in Ephesians 5.19, it says, don't drink too much, I think yours says Ephesians 5.18. It says, don't drink too much wine, for many evils lie along the path. Okay, I've never been an alcoholic. I've never really gotten crazy drunk. But is anyone in here willing to raise your hand and say, that's true? Is anybody in here being like, where's our, where's our recovery alcoholics at, right? Where's our people have been like, that's true. The path gets kind of stumbly, you know. As we go, it, it gets hard to figure out where I'm going. There's a lot of evils that lie along that path, right? And that's because what happens is you aren't yourself anymore when you drink. See, I wasn't, I never, I never drank. Uh, There's a couple times I drank when I was a kid because my mom was a bartender. It's a funny side story. I'll say it anyway because it's hilarious. So, I was so afraid of alcohol. My dad was an alcoholic, and he left our family at a young age because he chose alcohol over our family. So I always had this thing, whether I was a Christian or not, I wasn't ever going to drink because I thought, like, it, somehow it was tied to destruction of family. Later on, do I know? It probably is, you know? Um, but as a kid, I didn't know that. I was just like, don't drink or you'll have a broken family. And so I just never drank. But every once in a while, peer pressure came in, and, uh, you know, I, my friends drank all the time in school. And so there's a couple times where my mom would have there's alcohol all over my house. It's crazy that I never drank because my house had more alcohol in it than a bar because uh, my mom and stepdad were both bartenders. And so every once in a while, I'd get, a, you know, I'd get a little bold and I would pour myself a little shot of something that my mom had. And it's so funny I say this because I'm so embarrassing. Um, I, would, I would take this shot into my room and lock my door. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna do some stupid stuff tonight, man. Like, I, I gotta make sure nobody knows that I'm drinking because if I get, and I had to put my phone to the side, like I can't be doing no drunk texting, I can't be doing nothing crazy. And so I, this is what I do. I take that shot and be like, and I'd sit on my bed and I'd just wait. I was like, it's coming. I know it's coming. The drunkenness is going to be here soon. And when it gets here, who knows what I'm going to do, you know? And like, that was my thought process. Like, that's what I thought registered in my head. I was like, I don't know how many shots you're supposed to take. I don't know. I know, I know in school you read it like, you know, beer is a certain potency and then, and then wine is a little bit more and then shots are a little bit more. And I'm like, all right, I took one, but everybody's intake is a little different. So, you know, this is my first time. So, you know, I, probably one will do it. And that's what I thought. And I sat there and I laid there and I fell asleep, you <laughs> know? And I woke up the next morning, and I still remembered everything, you know? And I was like, I thought I was going to black out or something and be like, what happened? Maybe I did black out. Maybe I just thought it was all normal, and then I just went crazy, and it was like, dude, where's my car? I was like, what happened last night? I don't remember. That's what I thought was going to happen when I drank. It did not happen, you know? And I woke up feeling very foolish the next day, and I get to share that story with you guys now, like 20 years later. Um, But... For people who don't start, don't stop at one shot, and they go to a bar, and they drink till they're drunk. I've watched that because, like I said, my mom and stepdad were both bartenders, and I watched people get thrown out of bars my whole life. I've watched people sit at a bar table my whole life. I've sat at bar tables with men for 15 years and watched them walk in after work for just one beer and walk out at midnight, because that's sometimes when my mom got off, and I close, and I was, yeah, I was, a, I was an eight-year-old kid at a bar at midnight watching men from 5 p.m. when I got out of school 
till midnight when my mom got off work, sitting at a bar table watching these guys and starting this process. And they came in joking, watching the sports, and they, they left cussing and trying to swing on people. And sure enough, the next day they'd come in, and they weren't coming in the next, the next day swinging and cussing at people because that was the alcohol doing that. It had controlled them, it had taken over them, and now it was no longer those people in their right minds doing what they were, meant, what they were doing, but something had infused them. Something had changed their thought process, and they were no longer them. You see, God wants us to understand that he wants us to get that drunk, that kind of, that kind of influence, that kind of changing of progressions, but he doesn't want us to do it with wine. You see, the second part of this verse says, be filled instead with the Holy Spirit and controlled by him. Have you ever been so controlled by the Spirit that you were drunk in a way that you don't remember what you ever wanted in life? You don't remember whatever, whatever you wanted to desire in life, whatever you wanted to draw yourselves into life, whether it be an accolade in sports or a status with your friends or you know, just a job and security, that you have been so drunk in your relationship with God through the Holy Spirit that you're saying, man, I blacked out for a minute. I forgot, I forgot about what I wanted to live for because I was so consumed and controlled by what God wanted me to live for. That's what was happening in the first century when the light bulb went off. And that's where God is calling all of us to get to. Is saying that you're going to be so controlled by the Holy Spirit that you're going to black out and forget your whole previous life and what you wanted and desired. And you're going to be so focused and controlled because the Spirit is guiding you to, to do things that you wouldn't naturally want to do. And you're going to wake up just like you would when you blacked out and said, hey, where'd that come from? But you're not going to regret this one. You're going to be grateful for this one. You're going to say, man, because if that was just me doing life, I probably would have messed it up. It probably would have sucked. That person probably would have never got the help that they needed. But thank God that he gave them the spirit of boldness, spirit of fellowship, spirit of community, spirit of love. Thank God he gave me those things. Because I couldn't do that on my own. I had to be filled up with something else. In Romans 8, 13, it says, if you use your lives to do what sinful selves want, you will die spiritually. But if you use the Spirit's help to stop doing the wrong things, you do with your body, you will have true life. Guys, there's so many verses that go along with this. Now, what, now what is that purpose? What is that power? What is it meant to do? Well, we've heard this verse, the Great Commission is Acts 2, 18 through 20. We all know it. Then Jesus said, all authority in the universe has been given to me. Now go in my authority and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to faithfully follow all that I have commanded you and never forget that I'm with you every day, even to the end of this age. You see, he gave us that spirit. He gave us that power. He gave us that way to be controlled that we black out and forget our old lives. And the reason he gave us that because the stupid things that we would do when we get drunk like literally with alcohol, all those things that we're going to regret, those are actions of the sin, those are actions of regret. The things that we do when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, well, what are those things? The Spirit's going to guide us to find other people and make disciples. The Spirit is going to guide us to go find people and be like, man, I would have never 
went and met that person. I would have never sat down and had that conversation. I would have never shared where I was and where I am if it wasn't for that spirit filling me up. A lot of you guys today are here because somebody was filled with that spirit. A lot of you guys are here because I'm telling you right now, even in my own life, some of you guys are here because of me. But I'm telling you right now, you're not here because Jake wanted you here. You're here because the spirit was working through me and I blacked out for a little bit, (laughs) you know? And I said, you know what? I'm gonna go do this because I know it's what God would want me to do. But if it's for my sinful self, I wouldn't have wanted to go do that. I'd have been on a video game or on a job or in my bed because that's what Jake wants to do. But when you let the spirit fill you up, you will find opportunities to make disciples and change their lives and give them that same spirit to do the same. So don't forget that. You were reached because somebody was filled with the spirit and now it's your opportunity to be filled with the spirit to give it to somebody else. That's how the 12 went from 12 to 60 to 100,000. 12 people didn't do it. 12 people started it. It was a movement through a whole body of believers that got to that number at the end. And each and every one of you guys have a responsibility to help with that. Thirdly, I resolve that I will contribute to godly fellowship. I will contribute to godly fellowship. Acts Acts 2.42, three different translations here, right? All the believers in in the New Living Translation, NLT, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship and to the sharing of meals. Lord's Supper and a prayer. Acts 2.42 in the Easy Read Version. The believers spent their time listening to the teaching of the apostles. They shared everything with each other. They ate together and prayed together. Acts 2.42. Uh, the, the believers were in fellowship as one body. They shared with one another whatever they had. Out of generosity, they even sold their assets and distributed the proceeds, the proceeds who were in need among them. You see, all these different translations give all these different areas and all these different impacts that fellowship have with one another. And so if we're going to have this resolution to be like that church and to have that same momentum, we have to have great relationships with one another. We have to be committed to one another. We have to be in fellowship, but it can't just be friendship. You see, friendship and fellowship are completely different things. In godly fellowship, there's such a more depth that goes along with that other than just the commonalities that we share on a surface level. You see, no one can be devoted for you. Nobody can show God your devotion. They can't say, man, I'm I'm here representing how much Jake loves you, God. I'm going to stand here and and show him how much you love him. And vice versa, nobody can make you devoted. Nobody can get in your face and say, Jake, be devoted. They can't just change your feelings in your heart because they get in your face and say, devote yourself, devote yourself. Okay, I'm devoted now. You know, like, it doesn't work like that. It's a personal choice. You choose to be devoted to one another or not. You see, as a campus minister and working with college men and women, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of drama. It just is what it is, you know. I, I feel for the high school ministry because I know there's even more drama in high school, but it doesn't stop in college. It's just kids are so dramatic. You know, sorry, I was dramatic when I was college too. I'm not saying I wasn't either, but now I'm not, and you are, so you're dramatic, all right? Um, 
It's just, it's so much drama. And, and now that I'm older, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is like an episode of whatever is on TV now that drama kids watch. It's just, it's just reruns. It's reruns of my life. And so it's so frustrating because as we've gotten older, men and women outside of those student ministries, you realize how foolish some of the things that you argued over and you dealt with in, in school was, right? And you're like, these are, these are such stupid topics that will change friendships. And as grown men and women, we look at those things and we say, man, we can fight through that stuff and we're still really good friends. But the drama will, will tarnish relationships and friendships. And I, I plead with college kids all the time whenever there's an argument or there's like a fallout between two girls that are friends or two guys that are friends or whatever it is. I'm like, listen, you are going to let this destroy your relationship with this person when all you need to do is just talk through it and work through it. And it will make you stronger on the other end. But I cannot yell at you and tell you to be friends with that person. And nobody can make you friends with that person. You have to choose to be a friend of that person. You have to choose to be devoted to that person. And if you're going to follow scripture, it is your not just choice, it is your obligation as a disciple to be in relationship with that person. See, in John it says, you won't be my disciple unless you love other disciples. So you're not, you, you can't get off the hook here and say, well, just, the drama's too much, you know? It's too much for me. I, I don't want to be friends with them. I'll find somebody else in the church to be friends with. No, that's not how church works. That's not how a relationship with God works. You see, Jesus had his, his, his spheres of friends, but he didn't love any of them any less. And we, are, we can't either. And so if you devote yourself to Christ, you, you are called to appreciate the friendships and the fellowship that God has given you and be motivated by it. Not try to run and hide because you're frustrated by it. And, and I think it's important for us to look at that and realize in our relationships with one another, that will really be, our relationship with one another are a great example of what our relationship with, with Jesus is. The, 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 the America's got it backwards. It's like, I can be close with God and Jesus and not be close with people. I can, I can do this whole church thing with Jesus, but not do it with actual people. It's unbiblical. It's unbiblical to think that you can be close to God and not close to people. It doesn't work. It's honestly a reflection. The closest you have with people is honestly a reflection of how close you are with God. So ask yourself a rhetorical question. Am I close with people, or do I tend to find myself staggering and surface with people? because that's a great indicator of where you're at with God right now. See, God actually gave us people to be more intimate with him. There's a certain idea of who I thought God was and how I thought I loved Jesus whenever I first started coming around studying the Bible with people, but it wasn't until I had deep friends that cared for me that I was like, you're willing to duke this out with me? You're willing to fight this out with me because you love me? Man, that really makes me understand and appreciate more how much God loves me that he would send people like this into my life to love me and to help me and to challenge me and to support me. And so, guys, the challenge here is to look at your ear and say, have I neglected the huge benefit that God has given me into fellowship? And here are some things I want you guys to commit to this year with, with your ideas of, 
of fellowship and friendships. Number one is I want to be committed to studying God's word, okay? Studying God's word, and you can put together, because all these have to do with friendships. You can put together next to that. I want you guys to be committed to studying God's word together. When is the last time you sat down and studied God's word with somebody else? And I'm not talking about people that you guys are reaching out to in the world. When is the last time that you sat down and studied out God's word with one of your close friends in Christ, with no other agenda, but that you both had this commonality that you both loved Jesus so much that you wanted to get down and sit down together and look at his word and look at his character and figure out how that can help both of you guys together? A lot of us would probably say it's few and far between. But what are we doing at church if we're not really doing that outside of church? You know, how, why, do we, why do we come to church if we're not going to practice that and find that with people within the church? You think the first century went from twelve to 100,000 with people just showing up on Sundays? Definitely not. They probably also didn't do it just by hanging out and going out and eating together and, and, and going somewhere after church for lunch and maybe going to do some social thing at you know, the Coliseum or you know, whatever they, they would have done at that time. You know? They're like, hey, let's go watch some people get murdered. You know? like, maybe we can find something cool to talk about it from there and maybe become a Christian from there. You know? like, whatever they did for entertainment back in the day. Probably didn't do that and be like, hey, we went from 12 to 100,000 because the Coliseum fits quite a bit. You know, like that was our Sunday after thing. This pro- they had to sit down and infuse themselves into God's word together. Let's do that this year as a church. Commit to that. Rate yourselves from one to 10 on these, on how, how well you do at this. Do you go out of your way to find other people and say, let's just sit down and look at God's word together. Let's get some coffee. Number two, I'll be committed to giving generously. You'll commit to giving generously for others. You don't give generously to yourself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself an extra 10% this week for myself. I'm so generous with myself. God's going to be so grateful that I'm generous with myself. You know? Generosity is for others. So ask yourselves, you know, scale one to 10, how are you being generous? You know, talking about, you know, tithing, giving to the church, that's a part of it. You know, what you do whenever you give the church some of your money is what you're saying is, I want to be generous because I trust this church is going to be able to be put in a position that they know how to help people in an accelerated way. And so when I give money to the church, what I'm saying is, I want to be generous to you guys because you guys know how to be generous to the world. And so you, you trust that the leaders here take that money and we say, all right, well, we're going we're gonna to pay some people to be on staff so they can really, you know, find messages and, and, and find a way to, to set a direction for the church. And they're going to put more time and energy into this. We're gonna, they're they're going to use that money to go and, and, and fund community events that we do, like our, like our Rock the Block parties and, and our Fall Fest and our Spooktaculars and things like that. Uh, it's going to keep the lights on in this building for itself. It's going to be able to get us to get things that we need within this church building to help seek and save the lost. And you give that money... So it goes back to the community. You know, you don't put money in a collection plate and it just goes to heaven. Now it's God's money. <laughs> like, it doesn't just disappear. Like, that's God's money now, right? It's, it's, it's being given to people to be able to be used generously. And yes, you have an obligation in that somehow to be generous with your money to the church that you choose to be partnered with. But outside of that, you're also called to be generous with your lifestyle because there are things the church is going to be able to do with your money that you will not be able to do because they have resources and they have ways to use that money in ways that you don't. But the phone works both ways here because you will have opportunities in your life to use your money and your generosity in ways that the church cannot provide for you. 
The church will not come into your home and host a dinner for whoever you have coming in. You know, the church will not come into your job and host. You know, the church will not come into your car and give you gas monies. But these are things that you can find in your life that says, you know, I'm not just giving generously to the church, but I'm being generous to my lifestyle because there are opportunities that I can find in my life that God is saying, this is an opportunity to help somebody else. This is an opportunity to give somebody some money that will help them out of a jam. This is an opportunity to give somebody your time that will help them see me better. This is an opportunity to give somebody some honesty. You know, honesty, boldness is generosity to people because a lot of people don't like to give that out. Maybe being bold is being generous this year. Maybe you've been a little timid in how you talk to people. But there's all these opportunities to be generous with our time and our lives. And ask yourselves this last year, scale one to 10, how have I been at being generous? Okay? Number three, I'll be committed to eating together. Check, let's move on, right? (laughs) Next one, that's an easy one. I'll be committed to eating together. We can all do that, right? But why do we eat together? It's because we love each other. What's going on while we eat together? You know, I tell college students all the time, college students are like, I'm so busy. I don't have time for anybody. I got school, I got work, then I got homework, then I got these things, I got these clubs, these organizations. I don't have any time to get with anybody. What I always say to people when they have hard times finding time to get together, I said, well, you always got to eat, right? Find those meal times. And what do you do with your meal times? Because those meal times can really help find opportunities to show fellowship. Tonight, at our church banquet, we spend a time just to eat with no other agenda but to fellowship with one another because we value that and we enjoy that. And in your meal times, I ask you, what do you do in those meal times? Do you just sit and eat? Is it an awkward, quiet table where everybody's kind of like, you know, like everybody's mad at somebody that nobody knows what it is? And it's like, all you hear is just the metal of the clinking and everybody's like looking around at each other. Do you do that in your mealtimes? Do you even eat with other people? Do you sit at a lunch table by yourself? When you're at work, when you're at school, do you, go, do you purposely find somewhere to sit by yourself? Or do you choose to fellowship in those moments, in those times? You know, sometimes there have been nights at my house that we'll be eating dinner at the dinner table, and we might as well all be in a different room eating our dinners because there's no conversation going on. Thank the Lord for my wife that always makes some awkward question come up and she like interrogates my kids. But it, it always starts like that and then it turns into good conversations. If she sees an awkward silence, she's like, how was school today? Who, who did you hang out with? And she just, she keeps digging until they finally start a conversation. Because you know how kids are, parents, right? How was school today? Good. What'd you do? Nothing. What'd you learn? Nothing. You know? Who'd you hang out with? Friends. You know? You get all the one-word answers. My wife is the best at making one-word answers into long paragraphs. Like, who'd you hang out with? What'd you guys do? Where'd you guys sit at lunch? Which which spot were you at at the table? Was there anybody else going on? And like, she's like a a freaking interrogator with my kids. And eventually, she'll find something like, okay, let's talk about that. Somebody, she'd be like, one of the kids was playing at the playground. It's like, oh, they were playing at the playground, and oh, some kid said something mean to me. Boom! Instant conversation. What did they say? What did you do about it? Did you talk to a teacher about it? Okay, well, do you understand like that's not an appropriate way to act or 
Do you understand? And then she, she puts, she, she can put, and I'm like, I would have just been like, yeah, my day's good too. I did nothing. I just did whatever. You know, like, I did the same kind of stuff. And when I'm, what, as my family does that, I encourage you to do that with one another as well. Because it doesn't have to be a family model. I don't know how many times I've been with college men, all y'all in here, been in my house, just eating food, same thing. Good burrito. Man, this is good. This is good. This is good burrito. Oh man, this is good. I got a good taco. You know what I'm saying? And we sit here and we talk about our food, maybe, but there's never been like a like a life conversation. And I'm guilty of it just as much as you guys are. So my challenge here is when you eat, don't just make it about eating. The disciples ate together all the time. They broke bread all the time in their houses. But there's a purpose behind why you can eat together. Okay? You don't need to rate your skills on a on a one to ten scale on if you ate last year right? But what were those mealtimes like? Lastly, I'll be committed to praying together. Okay? I'll be committed to praying together. How much do you pray with one another? There's a huge power in prayer, but there's even greater power in praying with others. And I think we do neglect this a lot. I think we try to do it well, but we tend to not. I know I do, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very poor at this as well, but how much do you actually pray with one another about what's going on in your lives? You know, the typical church response, the churchy person will, you know, hear about a hardship and be like, I'll, I'll be praying for you. And then we either don't pray for them at all or we pray for them by ourselves, right? But how much more impactful can relationships be if we choose to pray with one another? And not, not praying with one another like, if I'm like, let's pray, and we all are in the same room, and we just prayed. That's not necessarily praying with one another. That's sitting in a room listening to a person pray. <laughs> it's not the same. See, I was at a staff meeting a, staff meeting a couple weeks ago, and I, we're, we're going through this book in our staff meeting. It's a, a, lot of, a lot of leaders, preachers from other churches that come to the staff meeting. There's probably 10 or 12 of us to get together. And we're going through a book, and... Uh, you know, we're just kind of in the middle of the chapter, kind of going through the book, and something pops up in the book, and I, and I share something about what's going on with my mom and just some stuff going on in my life. And uh, we, we kind of, normally, that always happens where somebody shares something about personal, about how their life or a situation applies to the book we're in, and we kind of keep going. We flip through the book, and we go to the next point and whatever. Well, this specific moment, I don't know why or how, but uh, Robert Cox, he's the lead minister at Wentzville, I just said something about my mom and the situation coming up for the holidays or whatever. And Robert says, you know what? Let's pray about that right now. And it was crazy because we normally wouldn't or, or, or don't do something like that. But in that one moment, I had felt, I'm not going to lie. I don't remember a lot of things we talk about at our staff meeting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. I don't remember it anyway, so why do I need to be there? You know, like, <laughs> um, let's have Wes relate it to me. Now, we, a lot of, it's just, we, we spend so much time together, and our relationships are so deep, and we spend so much time together, and, and there are times where we, we will talk about a lot of things, and what I'm saying is, is, I can't remember every little thing we talk about in our staff meetings. Just like a lot of you guys, when you go to school and you learn, how many of you guys remember what you learned your freshman year in high school? Probably don't, but you spent a lot of time in those classrooms, didn't you? Right? And I learn things, and I pick up on things, and I know sometimes I can refer back to things, but I'm telling you right now, I will never forget that moment. 
I will never forget that moment when Robert wanted to pray with me about something going on in my life. And it wasn't because, like, it's some special deal and, like, it's like, you know, a, a holy man wanted to pray over me. You know, like, it wasn't anything like that, but it was a friend who I consider Robert to be stopped in the middle of something to want to pray with me about something going on in my life. That's why I'll remember it. And if me as a disciple from another disciple can feel that way 10 years into my walk with Christ, do you not understand the kind of power you can have with somebody who you're reaching out to if you would do that with them? If somebody who's young in the faith and struggling with something, if you were to pull them in and do that with them, the kind of meaning that that would bring, the community that that would bring, that's what praying together can look like. Sharing that lifestyle with one another. And I encourage you guys all to look at yourselves and rate yourselves in that. Say, you know, how, how did I do at praying with others? See, the whole goal here is I'm challenging you guys to move from this, this idea of playground fellowship, that, that, you know, the playground when you're a kid and there's all this surface stuff, to purpose-driven fellowship. That's our movement. That's our move this year. And to do that, we have to look back at Acts and see how they did that and commit to that resolution to say, man, I'm not just going to be a surface kid or a surface college kid or a surface adult in this church anymore. And our relationships aren't going to be surface anymore. We're not just going to shoot the breeze and get together and hang out. But our relationships are going to be driven by what Jesus has done for us, and we're going to move in a direction of purpose in our relationships. And if we do that, there will be a depth that none of you have ever experienced with other, with other men and women. And that's our goal this year. Don't build your friendships off of immaturities and selfishness anymore. Build your relationships in the church off of maturity and selflessness and see how drastic those friendships become this next year. And what kind of men and women outside of this building will be attracted to those relationships this next year. Lastly, is I will champion a mighty God. This is our last point. <clears throat> I will champion a mighty God. You hear that word champion, and you're like, well, how do you put that together? Have you guys ever watched like a show or a movie? Um, my wife told me in the teacher service, she, she thought about the movie A Knight's Tale and how there's, that, there's a guy that comes out and kind of announces who the guy is going to, like the champion that's going to come out. It's like that announcer. If you watch like wrestling or MMA or boxing or anything like that, there's always that guy that gets in the, in the, in the middle, and he announces both the guys coming out. He's like, hey, now, coming out, the five-time world champion, and he has all these accolades, and he screams them out. Or like if there's ever like a movie like Gladiator or like one of those big movies where it's like, and now the fierce competitor who comes out, and he's, he's destroyed, and he's killed so many of these people, or he's killed so many of these animals, or he's killed so many of whatever. And it's, it's like somebody who's championing. They're, they're, they're helping you understand who you are about to be around. That's the kind of God that we serve and what we should be doing for him. Listen, listen to what this says in Acts 4. It says, As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and others had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices and, together in prayer to God and said, and now they're talking to God, right? It says, O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago, by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant saying, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? 
The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, all the people of Israel were all united against Jesus. Your holy servant, who you anointed, but everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. They are championing, championing God right there. They are letting him know who he is and they, he already knows who he is. You know, whenever somebody comes out and announces those things and that guy's in the back just kind of like waiting to come out, he's not like hearing it for the first time like, oh, I did that? Oh, that's me? Oh, I accomplished that? I achieved that? They already know that. And I'm pretty sure that everyone in the crowd, for the most part, knows that too, right? But he says that stuff to make it known who this guy is. Whether you know it or not, it's going to be said. And that's the kind of boldness and that's the kind of championing that needs to be happening around our God that we serve. You see, so many times I view Christianity and people who are Christians as weak and soft. Just this. I sometimes get myself in that same spot too. You see, sometimes there's this side of Jesus that we don't look at as much as we should. There's a side of Jesus that was a bad dude, that changed generations, that, that set a pace, that wasn't afraid to go in front of people and say what needed to be said. And when I look at Christianity sometimes in America, it looks very soft and very weak and very afraid. And we don't treat, when we live like that and we act like that, we don't treat God the way that this verse says he is. We don't champion him the way that we're supposed to. We instead get timid and, and, and recluse back and hide and are afraid of what our words are really going to say and how it's going to impact people. And they may judge us differently and they may look at us differently and we may not want to say anything that wants to you know, you know, burst bubbles or make waves. So we're just going to sit in our pews on Sundays and, and we're just not really going to say much and we're going to pray for people quietly and we're not really going you know, try to try to do what Jesus called us to do. That's really what we're doing. You see, Jesus empowered us. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why do you build a gate? If you were the commander of an army, would you build a gate for offensive purposes or defensive purposes? You build a gate for defense. You build a gate to keep people out. So why in the world does Jesus say, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? How many of you guys have heard, man, Satan's really attacking me this week, right? How many of you have said that? You see, we live in this mindset that like Satan's coming after us and Satan's attacking us. And Satan's getting at us. And what Jesus is saying, you need to knock that mindset off because the reality is I've given you power. I am the champion. I've already won. You need to freaking get up and go after Satan. He's got the gate. He's got the gate of hell. And I'm ready to bash it down. 
And we need more Christians to stand up for their faith and be more bold and start kicking doors down in this world instead of waiting for people and us building up our own little fake gate in front of our church and hoping that the world, it'll protect us from the world. You see, I had a college kid last year. I'll end on this story. I had a college kid last year um, talk to me about how his living environment was so negative. And he was like, man, I got in with some random roommates and it's just toxic. You know, it's just drinking, cussing, just the way they treat women, like a, a lot of negative stuff. He's like, I just, I can't live there anymore. It's just so toxic. And I was like, you know, I had that same situation at, whenever I was at SIUE. I was living in Cougar Village and our roommates got drunk all the time and they had their friends in there and they're partying and all stuff. And I was like, I ain't trying to be about this. I had considered moving out too, you know? It's like their world here. I said, you know what I did? And he's like, what? I said, I started having Bible studies there. I started having my friends come in. We started playing games at the house. We started doing prayer in the middle of the living room. I said, what you're doing right now is you're letting Satan attack you and your environment. But you need to be bold and grow up and attack their environment. You have God's people behind you. you God has already won. And it's time to be bold and bring God's people into your world. And Satan will back off. <laughs> he looked at me for a minute and he says, man, that's gangsta. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but you know what's crazy? Is that me and him both had a guy change in our apartment context and became Christians. Same people we're trying to run from are the same people we saved. And that's my challenge, guys, is that our church will be so bold, whether you're in school or you're at your job and you sit at those lunch tables or you have those coworkers, that you stop letting Satan make you recluse back and you're not so afraid to say anything anymore. But you're willing to kick those gates of hell down and say, listen, there are people in this world that I'm not going to let bully me anymore. I'm not going to let my faith and religion get sidetracked or timid, but I'm going to go out and blaze a trail because God has already won. And I'm going to make sure that people know that this guy's the champion and I got to rally an army behind me that's going to keep going and pushing me in the right direction. And this church will explode and people will know who we are and we will go from 12 to 100,000 just like they did because we got men and women that were on the same kind of stuff that they did. That's the kind of man or woman you want to be. This is the church for you. If not, there's a lot of other churches doing a lot of different things. But I encourage you guys all to be here at this banquet tonight so we can give you guys the same kind of theme and the same kind of vision of what we want to be and what we want to do this next year. So what I'm going to do is I, I, I thank you guys for coming today. I'm going to say a prayer. Um, that's going to give you guys some time to fill out. A, there's a communication card in your guys' bulletin, and that's an opportunity for you guys to kind of get on board this year. If you're looking for a change this year, I don't care if you're a member or not. Pull out that card and make a resolution today to figure out what it is that you want in your relationship with God. If you're new to this whole Christianity thing and you're trying to figure this out, maybe just check you like a personal Bible study. You want to get to know this kind of champion God and what kind of hope and future and, and things he has for you. But if you're a member and you've been here for a while, maybe it's time to look at those evaluations and say, what do I need to do to start kicking doors down in my life? What do I need to do to be a bolder man or woman in my life to change my context, but also change the people around me. And I hope that we can, as a, as a church, take individual resolutions to make this church a beacon of hope for the world. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you so much for your son.
Thank you so much for what he has done for me. Thank you so much for the opportunity to have a resolution to look at what the first century did and just be able to live like that, Lord. I know it can be so hard. Um, you know, it's not, it's not hard at the beginning of the year to have a, a new, you know, motive and vision and, and momentum. It's, but God, I know it's so hard to continue that through a whole year. But that's why you gave us your people. You gave us an opportunity to have people that encourage us, to hold us accountable, to, to just motivate us. But God, those are all people that you've given us so that we can have a higher relationship with you. We can have a more mature in-depth with you. But God, I pray that we can this year just blaze an awesome trail, set a great direction for our church. But we know that that direction of our church will only come by the direction of our members. And I pray this all in your son's name. Amen.